Well, I'm really glad of the welcome and the invitation, and it's a real treat for me to come back to Streams, and I come with a great sense of anticipation. I hope you do as well. This stands has a mind of its own, but it seems to be all right. I was just reminding Ruth as we sat together before we started singing that I came last time in my pyjamas. You may not remember this. I'm glad if you don't. But I was staying with a friend overnight. We lived in Switzerland at the time, and we were at home in the UK for a month. And I was staying with a good friend, Maureen Pret, who then lived in Coventry. And uh, we were talking and suddenly realized the time. And I shot upstairs to change. And as I was changing, I suddenly realized I had bought a jacket and I bought trousers and various other things, but I hadn't got anything to wear under the jacket. Uh, I'd forgotten to put it in the case. Now, I could have worn the jacket as it was, but knowing me, I would have forgotten and got hot. (laughs) And I thought that might make it an unforgettable evening. So... um, And then I suddenly realized I'd got some brand new pajamas and I pulled out the top and pulled it on, put the jacket over the top and it was purple with white spots and you may well remember it. But all evening as I stood here talking to you, do you know there was a part of my mind over here and it was full of purple pajamas with white (laughs) spots. I am not in my pajamas tonight. Well, when Anne asked me in June, I think, 2012, what I'd like to speak on in November 2013, it was just a little bit hard to decide, really. So I went for where I was at the time. It was going to be something about the wilderness and the desert and the hard places. So... If, you're the, if that describes where you are tonight, then my heart goes out to you. And I'm praying that God will reach out and have something to give personally to you as a gift. I was walking one of my granddaughters to school uh, just a few weeks ago, the youngest one. Miriam will be six in January, and she is larger than life. And we were walking up the road, and she was having a strop. She didn't want to go to school. School was boring. The people there were boring. The teachers were boring. All the subjects were boring. And her feet went down in time with what she was saying, you know, as we walked up along the street. And so I was doing what I thought that her parents would expect me to to do. Instead of sympathizing, I was saying, well, Miriam, you know, you used to get bored a bit when you were at home, didn't you? You know, I didn't. (laughs) Well, I seem to remember that you were bored at times. Yes, but not when you were there. What are you doing today? So so I tried to think of the most boring thing that we could... (laughs) And then I sort of took a different tack and I said, well, you know, Miriam, you might find it a bit boring now because everyone's settling down in a new class and the teacher's getting to know you and finding out what you can do. But just give it a few weeks and you'll find... And I was spinning a tale for her. 
and she didn't look very impressed. Anyway, as I got to the corner of the road, I said to her, as I normally do, okay, Miriam, what can I pray about school today? And she looked at me and she said, that it will be closed. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd shared with her my memories of the past. She wasn't having that. I'd encouraged her with what might be in the future. That was no good. I offered her strength for today and her solution wasn't something I felt I could pray about. So (laughs) any grandparents with better answers, please see me afterwards. (laughs) But it's not simply children who have hard times, although they do. And it's not simply teenagers who go through tough patches but they do. We all have those times in our journey when it is really, really hard just to keep going, just to trust, just to find some optimism and hope, just to pin our hope in God again. It's hard to do it, isn't it? It's so much easier just to ask all the questions. Well, where are you? And You know, if I was God, I wouldn't let this happen to anyone. And what are you going to do about it? But to actually pick up what the remnants of our hope and actually place them on God and say, I'm still trusting you in the middle of this, that I found is an extremely hard thing to do. And the thing is that when we're surrounded by friends and we're going through these tough times and we're being unrealistic looking back and saying, oh, it was so lovely when, and we remember the, you know, any age we remember the good old days. We remember things about our youth, things about when we had young children, things about when, I don't know, we had our dream job. And we look back And doesn't the enemy love to stoke it all up that we've had our good times and here we are in the presence and isn't it dreary? And actually, friends will point to the future and they'll say, oh, you know, just hang on and it will get better. Just just believe and, you know, pat you on the shoulder. The joy will come back. But actually what we need is something to happen today. We can't live in the past. We can't live in the future. Actually, the only moment that any of us can live is the moment that we're sitting in right now. I wanted to uh, read to you and tell you a story that's a great favorite of mine. I'm sorry that this looks so worthy, this enormous Bible, but in fact, I find it easier to read from it in public. Now I'm ancient. It's in 1 Kings, and it's the story, a story, a part of the narrative of Elijah. And if you want to find it, it's uh, 1 Kings 19 we're looking at. But remember, even if you haven't got your Bible with you, or you haven't got access to one in front of you, remember where it is, 1 Kings 19. And if you don't know where 1 Kings is... Don't be ashamed of that. There's a contents list in the front of your Bible. Really useful things to have. So look it up. 1 Kings chapter 19, and it's about Elijah. And he's going through a hard time in this chapter. 
And it's not surprising that he looks back. He's being a misery. He says he's like to die. And I just want to tell you, I won't read three chapters of 1 Kings 2, but I want to tell you before I read some, what's been happening in 1 Kings chapter 18. And in fact, slightly before that. There's a king of Israel, and his name is Ahab. And he has a fairly notorious wife called Jezebel. And they're a right pair. They just are evil. They enjoy evil. They sprinkle evil into the lives of people around them. They don't give not even that much to God or his laws or his word. And at the beginning of 1 Kings 18, we find that God has had enough of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, Elijah is God's man, and he, poor chap, is the prophet to this ungodly king. So Elijah's job, which not many people would queue up for, is to go and take what God is saying to Elijah, who doesn't want to hear it anyway. In fact, the real force for evil in this is Jezebel, and I think Jezebel freaks Elijah out completely. But anyway, you read it and see if you agree. And so at the beginning of chapter 18, God sends Elijah, lucky man, to tell Ahab that he is so evil... He has lost his way so badly that actually there is going to be a drought. There's going to be no rain, not just tomorrow or next week or a dry month, but for years. He doesn't actually tell him for how long. And... uh, Ahab's not impressed at this. He... He, um, he takes exception to it, and Elijah runs away. Now, Elijah's suffering the drought as well, isn't he? He lives in the land. There's no rain, so there's no food. So there's a decreasing amount of water. The cows can't drink and eat grass, so there's no milk. Do you get the picture? Elijah's not enjoying this any more than anyone else. So there's a little bit... After three years, Elijah comes back. Three years. He comes back and he goes to meet Ahab. And this is what it says. When when Ahab sees um, Elijah, he says, Are you the one that troubles Israel? And uh, Elijah says, well, I'm not the one that's made trouble. This is verse 18. You and your family are. You've abandoned the Lord's command. You've, uh, you've followed the Baals, which were the false, false gods. And now I've got an idea, he says. Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel liked them. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now listen to what Elijah says to them all. He says, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people didn't answer him. They said nothing. 
Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, and Baal has 450 prophets. So let's give a sacrifice each. Let's prepare an altar. Let's put the meat on the altar. Let's get all the prophets of Baal to call on their gods to send fire to cook the sacrifice. And then I will call on my God to send fire to cook the sacrifice. And we'll see which one wins. And the people said, what you say is good. Now, it sounds a bit bizarre, doesn't it? Top of Mount Carmel, drafty place. Don't know where they got the stones from, presumably around on the hillside and the meat. But the prophets of Baal, they had their first go, and they built the altar, and they put the meat on top, and they danced around the the altar, calling out to their gods to send fire. And Elijah sort of egged them on. He said, come on, you're not shouting loudly enough. Surely you can do better than that. Come on, he can't hear you. He hasn't sent fire, so you can't have shouted loudly enough. Keep going. They were dancing. They were using knives to cut themselves. And the book of Kings says, no, there was no response, no answer, no voice was heard pretty final. Now in their frenzy they'd knocked over Elijah's uh, altar so he had to build it again, got his meat on the top and he stood there. Now just picture this because it's important for what happens next. There he is, one person standing on top of the very high mountain, no missing him, nowhere to hide And it says he raises his hands in the air and he says, Lord God Almighty, so that your name will be honored on the earth and these people will know that you are the Lord God. Send fire and the fire fell. It's pretty impressive really, isn't it? Never has happened to me. But after this happened, the people threw themselves on the ground and they said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And the prophets of Baal were all captured and done away with. And Elijah, at the beginning of chapter 19, he's run away. He's run away on his own. He's even left his servant behind. And he hides up a deserted hillside. And this is the point where he needs to accept the reality of the past. You see, he says, I want to die. Here's the man who has stood there and said, Lord God, let the fire fall. And the fire fell. And he wants to die. His life isn't worth living. He's the only one left. Jezebel sent him a message saying, don't think that your life's going to be any different from the prophets of Baal. I'm out to get you. And here he is in a deserted place with very little to eat or drink, no one to keep him company, no one to cheer him up. I want to die. Now the Lord God comes to Elijah 
But before we move on to his present, I want to ask you, what do you remember when you think of your past? He had a fairly flamboyant memory, didn't he? He could remember going to Ahab and saying, there'll be no rain, and there wasn't. Quite impressive. He can remember going back to Ahab and saying, let's have a competition. And they had the competition, and God won. Quite impressive. But what's he remembering of his past as he creeps away into this place called Horeb, as he crawls away all on his own, no company, no comfort, no food and drink? Well, he misremembers it. I don't know what your story is like that you remember as you look back. Last year was a really difficult year for me, but it wasn't that 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 bothered me at the time. It was looking back and remembering. And there were all sorts of things that the enemy brought to my mind, that Satan brought to my mind, that had never been dealt with, that had never been finished with, that I'd never brought closure to. There were things from my childhood, memories of when I was a young woman. There were memories of when I'd first got married. I went to live in Ethiopia. My husband was a pilot there with uh, light aircraft. Tom's 10 years older than I am. I was 23, and I went to live in a part of the world which is just full of starving people. I had never seen anyone really, really hungry before. People would come and bang on the metal sheet on our gate asking for food. And I remember one day when I was uh, pregnant, expecting Richard, who was born out there, I was quite large. I can't have had very long to go. And I sort of waddled out to the gate in the blazing sun. And there was a woman outside the gate. She was pregnant. She was holding another child in her arms. She had another one or two clinging to her dirty dress. And she gave me, she said to me, the Amharic word for food, food, money. And I stood there in a mother care dress that was about the cheapest one that there was in the catalogue. I felt like the queen. And memories like that stay with you, you know. I always live now in a world where I have an awful lot and a lot of the world has very little. It's a memory that that travels with me. What are the memories that travel with you? When I came here last time, I was living in Switzerland. And before I went to Switzerland, in fact, the reason I went was because something happened in my life that felt cataclysmic. It changed the course of my whole life. It was very public, and in my opinion, it was very unjust. And of course, when I went to live in Switzerland, things happened that sort of helped me on my way, but that memory was still there. It was still waiting for me to deal with it. It was still waiting for me to bring closure with Memories don't go away. 
They might become disjointed. They might become misremembered, like Miriam's memory of the good old days at home. But they wait for you to deal with them. And maybe tonight's the night for you to deal with some of your memories, to get some reality about the past. See, God is outside time, so God can come and heal what has happened. God can come and and sort the stuff that's just been parked there for years. Last year was a big year for sorting out some of the stuff that had been parked And maybe tonight will be for you. So the reality of the past. But actually, Elijah needed strength for the present. You see, at the beginning of chapter 9, there's no two ways about it. Elijah is terrified. He thinks that Jezebel's going to come and get him and finish him off. He's exhausted. He's had all these years of not eating properly, not drinking properly, of hiding away. But before that, he's had years of prophesying hard things to people who didn't want to hear it. Not a job that I would envy him for. And then he had the strain of that incident on the mountain. And here he is in 1 Kings 19. And I just want to read a little bit to you. So Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, Do those words sound familiar? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Now listen to what God does. Listen whether God tells him not to make a fuss about nothing. Or does he come and tell him, well, Elijah, you were brilliant in the past and this just isn't fair? Or does he come and tell him to stand up and be a man and get on with it? Just listen to what he does. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals, and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled for a long time further into the mountain of God, Horeb. And he went into the cave and spent a night. And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And he tells God again, the Israelites have rejected you. The people have gone against you. The kings defied you. And I, only I, have stood up for you. And he goes to sleep again. When he wakes up, do you know what God says? 
he says the same question again. Elijah, what are you doing here? When I was in Switzerland and all this stuff came bowling along the road at me, I'd had a brilliant time up until then. Switzerland is such a beautiful place. It's like living on the cover of a chocolate box. It, it is so very beautiful. And where we were living in the pre-Alps, there was snow on the mountains, and when I looked out of my, the window of my salon or lounge, you look right across the little village to the mountains the other side. When I looked out of the kitchen window, I looked up the mountain to the snow above me, covered in wildflowers in the spring. You could hear the cows with their bells all through the summer, walking home in the evening, walking out in the morning. Snow for five months, six months of the year. And the expat community is amazing. Their social life, well, we'd never had a social diary like it. So please don't imagine that I was sitting in Switzerland breaking my heart. But things went wrong in a little group of people, not really very much to do with me. I just happened to sort of get in the way and tried to sort it out. And it was like a bomb going off in this group of people. And suddenly, instead of having this time of my life I was broken I couldn't sleep uh, I felt as though I knew what people meant when they said someone had had a breakdown I couldn't finish sentences I had the most awful nightmares I, it was appalling maybe you've known a time like that and we had to pack up the car and the trailer and the roof pod and drive back to the UK. And last year, on the first, the last day of March, the beginning of April, we moved into a tiny cottage, holiday cottage in Morton in Marsh, and we told hardly anyone that we were there. Just our family and a few close friends. And I was in a mess. I couldn't walk into a church building without sobbing my heart out. I couldn't read the Bible without crying all over it. It was awful. And in the middle of that, I didn't know where God was. And you know, we've been singing some very powerful songs, haven't we, in the last half hour. No, no, you'll never let go. But at the time, you don't feel that, do you? I didn't know whether God had let go of me or not. I had no way of knowing. I just knew I was in a mess. And all I could keep doing was to get up in the morning, get breakfast, wash up, walk out along the high street, come back, get lunch. Have you ever known a time like that? Because if I tell you, if you have, and I tell you that I feel 150% well now, 
then maybe that's an encouragement to you. God doesn't leave us in those messy places. He brings us through them. Maybe he walks us into them. But you know, this world we live in is a very broken place. Nasty things happen to people, good and bad people. Sometimes there is no logic to it happening. But I do know now, looking back, that God was there. Now, what happened to Elijah? Well, we've nearly finished, but let me tell you what happened to him. The Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, because the Lord is about to pass by. So then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard that, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the Lord's voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I wonder what he wanted Elijah to say. I think he wanted Elijah to put into words what had brought him to that place and where he wanted to go from there. All Elijah said up till now is, I want to die. Well, that wasn't what was going to happen to him. Maybe God asked him that question the third time so that Elijah could start imagining into what God's plans were for him. And the Lord says to him, go back the way you came. And when you get to the desert of Damascus, you need to anoint a king, two kings, and you need to anoint another prophet. And, oh, and by the way, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 people in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You see, God didn't say to him, come on, get up and get on with it. He didn't say to him, you were brilliant in the past and this is the most awful thing that's ever happened to anyone. Not at all. He just came to him. He gave him food and drink, practical things. And then he revealed himself to him. Strength for today. And I can say that's what God did for me. He gave me a little tiny home to live in. It had one room on the ground floor and one room up the stairs. And we lived there for six months. And I didn't go to church. Well, I did. I went to the big cathedrals, to the really impersonal Services I could manage with the beautiful music and the Bible being really well read, but no one knew me. No one came and spoke to me. That's what I needed. But God came and met me there. And maybe you know tonight, God has come to face you about today. 
Maybe he's saying to you, what are you doing here? And he wants you to find the words to say what you've come for tonight. What have you come for? Whatever made you come, get in the car, walk here, fill a coat. What was it in your heart that made you come here tonight? Because that's an answer that you need to give God as he says to you, what are you doing here? So we've had reality of the past, strength for the present, and then as we finish, hope for the future. And I have a future. I never thought I would have. I'm not even sure if I'd come here November of last year whether I would have been able to say to you, yes, I've got a future. But I have. I'm back in ministry. I'm back able to talk to people about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus and you came and asked me about Jesus tonight, I can tell you about him. I can introduce you to him. I can tell you what an important, most important person in my life Jesus is. So come and ask me. But I couldn't have done that before. God has come and given me healing. He's come and touched my life. Not in a big bang. It wasn't at the end of something splendid like streams. It was just quietly, week by week, I knew I was changing. I knew I was sleeping better. The swelling in my face went down. The um, twitch, nervous twitches in my face. I was a mess. They went. God came and healed me. And if you need healing tonight, then that's the answer you need to give God when he says, what are you doing here? He's given me hope for my future. So I'm back in ministry in a church. I'm back speaking about Jesus to people when they need to know about him. And I'll gladly speak to you about him too. See, Elijah had to go off and anoint two blokes to be kings and anoint someone else to be a prophet. He had to appoint his successor and he had to look for his final destiny. Those were the things that God gave him to do because that's what prophets do. But that's not what he's given me to do. I don't go around anointing kings or prophets. I wonder what he has for you to do. I wonder what God's hope for your future is. Some of you here have grey hair like mine. Maybe you think, well, looking back is easier than looking forward. But that's not true with God. There is always a future for the people of God. Today is always the first day of the rest of your life. There is always hope. And when God has dealt and healed your past and given you reality about it, when he's met you and heard your answer for, what are you doing here today? Then you can be absolutely sure that God has hope for your future. You see, Elijah's story is not your story. Elijah's story is not my story. My story is not your story. You have your own. But what you need to do tonight, if you'll take some advice from me, is to bring your past before God and say, I want to be real about this. 
is to stand in the present moment and answer God's question as to why you're here tonight. And then to receive prayer for what the future holds. Because there is one and it's full of hope. And this is what we're going to do. A way of doing this. We're going to spend some time praying. We're going to do that quietly, not in groups or pairs or um, all together here, but 